never know what church attendance is always a mystery. <laughs> One Sunday you think, oh God, we're you know we need to expand. There's like like we have to close down. See, we're going to be dealing with a little bit of uh, background noise. We had a leak in our toilets. That's what this is all about. And so it was an emergency on Sunday because both of the ones down here were backing up through the drains up into the stalls. So we emergency and so I had to do an overflow that required some digging up of some. Uh, yeah, so we had that. That was a real thing. I'm going to hear. Uh, sure, sure. Great. Thank you so much. Um, what's that? No, just black cup of coffee is great. Oh, I see. Marion's Marion's tired. Marion didn't want any part of Revelation. I leave at the end because I have time. Let's go to school and learn some stuff. What am I doing here? I need to find a way to get into the meeting I want to get into, which is Gosh, you, you feed people lunch, they come, but all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> there. There's so many people here. <laughs> Got all that now. Have you to my video? Where am I? The camera is not that. It's, uh, Thank you for your. <laughs> the heights of contemplation in two minutes for us. Yeah, I, I love that. No, I never yeah, it's, yeah, just something. Yeah, All right, we're at 1030. Uh, so uh, let us pray. Blessed Lord, just cause all holy scriptures to be written for our learning 
grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, hello to all. We promised to uh, wade into Revelation. You all said you were willing. So um, it's just not going to be like John. We do plot through a chapter a week and go and, and keep a, keep a uh, well. Let's we'll, we'll walk through the issues here. Um, you know, everyone's got an opinion. And when someone has an opinion and got a PhD, it gets put in a book, and then everyone thinks that that's it. But it really just someone's opinion. They put in the book, and the next guy says, well, I guess he said this, and pretty soon assumes that's and so, But dating is like that. Um, it's uh, somebody has a theory, and then everybody else says, well, yeah, he says that. And then it gets like, oh, this is like, like for example, their theory is that Marx, you know, there's a debate actually about whose is the um, earliest written gospel. And, you know, so the people say, I think Mark is, so mid 60s, or Matthew's about 70, Luke's about 80. Nobody knows that. It's like, it's like, you just don't know. I mean, so that's my point. It's not wrong to consider the questions how these came from written traditions to its final form. But but nobody really knows. A mystic might know. It's conceiving. I yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, the whole idea of when when somebody actually wrote the gospel, as opposed to what the gospel means, would not, to me, be a, something that God would be particularly interested in giving visions about. So. Um, but but we just studied John's gospel, and the reason to go to um, Revelation is, is that the tradition of the church believes that John's gospel and Revelation and the epistle of 1st John and 2nd and 3rd John also are, are from the same sort of source. I mean, the, the ancient thing is that St. John wrote them all. 2nd and 3rd John are a little bit different but have similar tones, but if the interesting thing about reading the gospel and first John and Revelation is they're all talking about the same things and all the symbolism just recurs again and again. So uh, that's why we're um, uh, why we're wading in, into this because it follows on John and people we liked John. So now we get John some more. Um, and so the idea is um, yeah, so how does this fit in? And I'm gonna I'm going to express you know a, a fairly uh, strong opinion about it because um, I just think it makes it it's something that makes sense of the New Testament in a way that doesn't without it. Um, but the, the the traditional date, which is some scholars said this. And everyone listened to him until another guy needed a PhD and realized, oh, it isn't that fixed. Was that you know that John's gospel 
or the revelation was written in the uh, maybe the 90s. Um, they're trying to connect it with a kind of persecution that broke out in the 90s AD. And, um, but there's only um, one quote from a, a church father named Irenaeus, who's quoted by Eusebius. You don't have Irenaeus's own quote. At, um, that, that, that I don't want to get into all the details of that quote, but it doesn't really prove anything. So it gets back to nobody really knows. So it's probably better to understand Revelation in terms of what it says itself about, about it. And in, in, in the larger framework of the Bible, we might be on, on firmer footing for figuring out when it is. And if... Um, if, as I will propose, and you don't have to agree with me, but if you're going to do Revelation, you're going to hear me describe this, that Revelation is dealing in a primary way with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70, then uh, a vision like this would, would need to be dated in the late 60s. And there are, there are scholars who have PhDs who conceive that that's a real possibility. <laughs> You know, it's, that's that's how this this works. In fact, one commentary when I looked over these, you know, in its it's like one of these sort of series of commentators. The 1960s version suggested 90, but the newer, you know, version of the, of the Revelation commentary realized that that wasn't certain, and the early date might make sense. The destruction. Well, I, I know. I think I think this would this would talk about being before the destruction. Now, so let, let's let's talk a little about what this. And I think for all of Revelation, to not end up in outer space in your understanding, you have to understand that this is this is a document that fits squarely within the Bible. The narrative of it connects closely with the narrative of the Old Testaments, the themes of those narratives, and and the images that we're going to come up, up with are all rooted somewhere in the Old Testament. And so when we go say, well, what does it mean there? And then what is its application? What is its renewed meaning now in this new context? And this is just a reality of biblical prophecy. So, for example, to give, you know, we, we just worked our way through Christmas. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. If you go look at Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about some woman in his lifetime who's going to bear a son named Emmanuel, who, um, whose, whose birth is going to be a sign that the alliance of Syria and the northern kingdom against the southern kingdom is not going to is not going to succeed. Not going to succeed. God's going to protect the temple and the southern kingdom. But then, when it's picked up as a prophecy, the New Testament has a new horizon. Same narrative theme: birth of the son is a sign. Now, Jesus now it finds its its, its new application in in the virgin birth of our Lord and the sign. Of, of, of deliverance for God's people. And so this happens continually with prophecy. If a New Testament author says, 
this was the, like Matthew does a lot in his gospel, this was to fulfill the prophecy. If you go look at what, what he's talking about, something happened back then too, that then the, the, the sort of prophetic theme repeats itself or even comes to fruition. So prophecy is, we're so used to hearing it as, I make this statement that's gonna come true. But biblically, it is it is as much about the narrative, the fulfillment of the narrative, how the narrative of the old covenant comes to fruition in Christ. So Christ fulfills the prophecy most clearly in that he is the embodiment of Israel, who recapitulates Israel's entire experience in his person and fulfills all the does all the things that the temple sacrifices and such pointed to. So a lot of it is narrative. Now, why do I think, you know, and we'll look at a couple passages here. We may not actually get into Revelation today. We're just going to have to be patient. You all told me, you got promised to be patient because you all told me it was okay. And you're going to need a Bible in your hand because we're going to refer to things uh, continually through Revelation. So you've got to be one of the people who keeps your finger here. We go back there. I'll try to do like I did this morning and send some verses out ahead of time to peek at. Um, but um, so the Old Covenant, the Old Testament came to an end. Well, how, let me ask you, I'm not going to tell you. How did the Old Testament come to an end? What happened at the end of the Old Testament? Let me ask some leading questions. Was Israel faithful to the Old Covenant? No. So what happened to Israel at the end of the Old Testament as a result of her unfaithfulness? It was destroyed. Who, who did that destroying? Do you remember the, the nationality, the nation? The Babylonians. The Babylonians situated, you know, in the regions of modern Iraq, were the world empire that the prophets made very clear I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar as my arm to judge my people who've been disobedient to what I've said. Jeremiah makes this um, clear because Jeremiah is a prophet right in that, at that time. So at the end of the Old Covenant, what happened is the prophets came and, and almost all of what we call the writing prophets of the Old Testament, but even the non-writing ones like Elijah and Elisha, who are written about but don't have books, they all rose up to tell either Israel, the northern kingdom, or Israel, the southern kingdom, to repent. And if they didn't repent, something was going to happen. And you can group the, you know, there's a lot of nuance in those in the prophetic books. There's, you know, Isaiah... Um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then there's 12 minor prophets, each of whom has some historical setting, but virtually all of them have some connection to this first millennium before Christ and a prophecy to Israel who's being unfaithful, saying you got to repent. And they don't, and, and there were two major days of the Lord. One was the Assyrians um, came and invaded the northern kingdom, and there was no more northern kingdom after that happened in 722 BC. 
after 722 BC, there were no, there was no northern kingdom, and that's the origin of the New Testament Samaritans, because the Assyrian policy was to resettle and intermingle, and so that's, but, and so the southern kingdom endured for another 150 years, and in that time, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, became the world power, so in 586, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in a catastrophic end of all covenant Israel. Well, there was no there was no recognized temple in in nor, in the northern kingdom for Assyria to destroy. Babylonians took over all of the Well, no, I'm saying that. Um, I want to, you know, I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom, none of them, um, they all, you know, they, when they, when these foreign powers conquered, what they would do, they would subject a, com- a, a country to tribute. So you had to pay taxes. Um, that's ultimately what's about is money. That's why Russia is invading Ukraine. They want money. Um, and the old way to get it was, I'm, I'm conquering you, and we won't kill you if you just give us 100 pounds of gold every year. So you keep doing it until until the country's emboldened enough to say, we're not doing that. And then that, empire, then that foreign power, when it got around to beating the bounds of the empire every two or three years, would come and destroy your country. And put, and put in a favorable ruler who would, in fact, pay taxes. And then, so Assyrians did that. They resettled people there, and they had some kind of, I'm not that privy to their particular form of government, but they did that. And then the Assyrians got conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then came, and everything was subject to the Babylonians. But then Israel got destroyed because it rebelled against the Babylonians. It said, we're not paying taxes. And I want to get to the narrative connection here, but... Because because Israel is located on a map, you, you've got these these countries to the east like Assyria and Babylon, and to the south you have the Egyptians. And a lot of what happened was because Israel controls the trade routes, they all went through there. Everyone always fought over that area. So when the southern kingdom said we're not paying taxes to Babylonia, is because the Egyptians said we'll help you. You give us a little less, we'll help you. But then when the Babylonians came, they didn't really help them. And so anyway, but the, the point from the narrative of the scriptures is that unfaithful Israel was judged. There was a day of the Lord that came. God visited his people with judgment in a way that, that he did it through the arm of a foreign power, the Babylon, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. It wasn't. It, it, and so but he said, this is I'm, I'm coming. As he says in, say, Amos, prepare to meet your maker. It it wasn't a beatific vision, it was a judgment vision. So what I'm suggesting then is we get into the New Testament and Jesus comes to Israel as the Messiah, but he also comes as as a prophet. Because what, what makes him a prophet? Because he calls Israel to repent. 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John the Baptist is the transition, the last of the old covenant, who also said, you all need to repent. And a lot of times we we do get caught up in our own sort of developed idea that, of course, we need to throw away from our sins so we can be saved and, you know, live forever. But there was a very imminent historical message for Israel when Jesus said repent is you need to repent or or you're going to be overrun. And and and. Um, they didn't repent a remnant. Jesus called a remnant to be his new covenant people, those who believed in him. But we, we, we covered this thoroughly throughout John, how the Jewish leadership did not, and they plotted to kill him. So um, it follows that when we understand that the Romans in AD 70, so Israel eventually, all the independence movements rebelled against Rome, and so Roman protection was taken away, and the Roman general Titus came down and did to Israel what the Babylon did to, to Israel in the first century what the Babylonians did to Israel five centuries earlier. Destroyed the temple, leveled it to the ground. It's never been there. In the narrative arc of the New Testament, the difference between the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC is the 586 BC was not, it, it was God judged the people and destroyed the temple, but the temple got rebuilt by God's guiding. And the temple was supposed to be there for, primarily to welcome the Messiah who would replace the temple. When the temple was destroyed in AD 70, it's the end of the Old Covenant. And that's why the language in the New Testament that gets confusing, and this is where things kind of like, oh, of course, like Jesus talks about the sign that's coming in the end of the age, um, we certainly believe it's coming at the end of time. But there's also a way that he came at the end of the Old Covenant age, and that the cosmic shift that took place the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit that was um, illustrated by the end of Jerusalem as the center of worship for God's people and epitomized by its destruction. That was the end of the Old Covenant Age. And there's a literal salvation We'll look at this in a second. Um, there's a literal salvation for in the New Testament where God's new covenant people are warned by prophets before the Romans arrive to leave. The tradition recorded by Eusebius is that they left, went across the Jordan River to a city called Tella. And they were not there when the Romans came. All they, of them, huh? All of them are the people that were told. I mean, I mean, I mean obviously, you know, a lot of people are martyred. So it's, I, I, I'm more interested in the, 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 the narrative arc. And the narrative arc is God's new covenant people were warned. Those who listened to the prophets left. The Romans came. So not only was the New Testament church just saved eternally by faith in Jesus Christ, 
the New Testament church in Jerusalem was saved from the judgment that came on the old covenant people for their unfaithfulness. They went across the Jordan into into this, and they were they were so when we, we some some of that was very literal, and so we start talking about the Olivet Discourse, you know, when um, when, when it's time to flee, don't get your stuff, just run. He's, that's what they're talking about—a very historical first-century narrative of salvation that that fits. Um, and even back when the Babylonians destroyed, you know, people like Jeremiah who who didn't agree with the leadership's rebellion, the Babylonians knew that, and they they didn't get destroyed. They got treated favorably. So. Um, This is a missing element in a lot of people's understanding of the New Testament because, and it's kind of crucial, I think, in our time because people, you know, you'll get the heresy that says, you know, the Old Testament God judged, he did mean stuff, but Jesus was just all about love. And there was, you know, it was all good and hunky-dory and, 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 and the, the reality is, no, it's exactly the same. Jesus certainly reveals the love of God more fully in his incarnation. But when God came and said to his people, repent, and they did not, there was the same judgment. And what Revelation is going to show is that, that judgment is at the hand of Jesus, the Lord, who, who, who judges those who judged him on, on Good Friday. And the idea that, that such a... Such a uh, a central historical event took place, and the New Testament is, is it doesn't have something significant to say about it. So the idea that Revelation does, the more you look at the symbolism, the more we'll pick it up. Um, it fits in the narrative arc, and it also makes helps us to understand there's there's a distinction in language in the New Testament between the coming, there's a coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem that's not the end of time. Once we understand that, a lot of the confusion that comes up that tries to make what Jesus talks about is going to happen in the first century mean the end of time, it, it, it clarifies things. Isn't there like a verse in one of our morning or evening prayers earlier this week that was talking about there have been many antichrists? Yeah, there's all yeah, lots of antichrists. But but that's that's um that's John talking to the Christian community in Ephesus, uh, and that's not pertaining to the that's a different narrative how what what threats formed you know these Christian communities in, in the world after the end of Israel. Uh this is a different narrative where there's there's just judgment for the rejection. Okay, but they're still showing us a pattern that prophecy can be about one, and then it also so it can be about others. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the what we therefore what we are to, what we understand since this consistent narrative, and it doesn't just pertain to the old and the old covenant, and you know the new covenant, you know, gets back to Noah and the flood. We just read about in Genesis, wickedness. God saves his people, God judges those who don't believe. That's continuous. So when we say 
he shall come again with glory to judge living and the dead. What we're to understand is this the globalization of judgment that was particularized in Israel. And this is going to be the same theme. It's not, it, and there's a reality of it. Um, and to understand the Bible in its own terms is to understand that. To, to, to miss that is to um, get very far afield. Now let's look at a couple of passages um, today uh, that are preliminary. <clears throat> One, a couple I didn't send to you. Um, so open your Bibles to Matthew 23, 34 through 37. Matthew 23, my Bible there, just so I have. I'm going to read Matthew 23, starting with uh, 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now, just look at verse 35, a very important verse. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. You will, I say you will see me no more until you say, Blessed you comes in the name of the Lord. But the point is, right there, Jesus promises the, the judgment's going to come, and not just, it's, and this, this will tie into Revelation when we get there, because there's, there is images of blood in Revelation and, and the, the vengeance, but it really only makes sense. The only place in the Bible where we, we get mention of, of, of guilt for all the righteous blood is unfaithful Israel. And so sometimes people are trying to say that Revelation's about the judgment on the Romans or this, but 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 their abusive empires and in the language of Daniel would even be beasts, but they're not responsible for all the guilt on the earth as like 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 he lays at the feet of Israel here. Um, the other passage where Jesus prophesies this is Luke nineteen. Verse 41 through 44. Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. This is um, this is what he does as he comes in Jerusalem for the for his final time. Um, 
he says, uh, now is he, verse 41, is he drew near the city, he wept over it. So, and this is not a, you know, a couple of crocodile tears. These are, this is Jesus. This is, I mean, he doesn't want this to happen. He's come to save them. But in a real world with real decisions and choices, if the Son of God comes and says, repent and believe, and people don't, the consequence, there's a consequence. And you can't, it can't be avoided. So he's, he's mourning deeply over what's going to happen and saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this year day, the things which make for your peace. Talked about in John's gospel, the peace is shalom, the fulfillment of the covenant, the thing which would bring you back into communion with God. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you're my people. Yeah, yeah it's coming yeah. to your family. Yeah. I'd be mean, like. Isn't that Luke's Yeah, yeah. All people, you. Yeah. yeah. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So there's two passages, one in Matthew and one in Luke, where Jesus is very clear about this impending judgment. Now, um, another passage here then that we'll look at that I did send out to you is, is this, this thing, um, going back to Matthew chapter 24 now. And actually that will um, fall right in the heels of the Matthew passage that we just read, where the, the guilt is promised. And so... We're clear that Jesus has just prophesied the judgment on Jerusalem. And um, so therefore, in this this passage here, Matthew 24, there's a parallel passage in Luke and in Mark. It's, It's usually referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It's this talk Jesus gave at the end of his ministry where he, he, he and it's been hugely misunderstood and misapplied by Bible prophecy teachers who don't understand the essential narrative arc of the story and don't understand some of the symbolism in it. And so let's 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 read that, and then this will give us some background uh, that we can then uh, go into Revelation probably next week. It's going to take this. Chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. So the disciples were saying, look how beautiful this is, because it was an impressive building. The temple that that was in existence in this verse was, at the end of the Old Testament, um, Israel rebuilt the temple, about 515 BC. It was pretty pathetic in relationship to Solomon's temple, but um, 
in the time before the first century, the first century BC, the Roman authority remodeled it and adorned it beautifully to curry favor with the Jews. So it became beautiful at the time of Christ. But that's how it comes. So Jesus said to them, verse 2, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So that's what Jesus says. This is going to happen this way. Then let's look at verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, hence the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they ask a specific question. When is this going to come to an end? Now, where people confuse this is if your coming has to be the second coming at the end of time, and the end of the age means the end of time, you get all kinds of confusion in Matthew here. But if in context he means the answer will be at the sign of your coming in judgment on Jerusalem as the enthroned Lord, and the end of the age, the end of the old covenant age, all of a sudden everything he talks about here falls into place. So let's read on a little bit. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The sorrows there is birth pangs. And what is the image here is that the tribulation of Israel at the end of the old covenant age is going to, is going to be the event that ends one and gives birth to the, to the new covenant Israel. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended and betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, if we really think about this teaching in the context of the events of an Israel in the first century, this is kind of what happens. If you want to read more about this particulars, um, the historian Josephus is a Jewish historian who writes a history of, of the destruction of the temple. And when you read him, you can see that a lot of these things happened. You know, people, as, as, as they rejected the Messiah, they hardened their opposition uh, to, um, 
We already know that from Acts that St. Stephen was stoned to death. We know from Eusebius that St. James, uh, who was known as the Lord's brother, was, was martyred in Jerusalem when he called from the pinnacle of the temple for the hearers to repent, and they pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple and, and hit him in the head. So this rejection is, and, and so you have people promising you've got a lot of anxiety and turmoil in a nation. Um, and it ties back to what Jesus was saying is, having rejected your Messiah, having rejected God's rule, this is all you're going to have. Um, it would be a slight parallel to our time in that we, we, we're talking about living in a post-Christian age, but as people increasingly reject God's rule, the alternatives are just chaos because they're not real. They're just you doing what you think you want to do as opposed to listening to God and being governed by the world's maker. So the same, this increase in, in um, false prophets and lawlessness is just a consequence of having rejected the Torah made flesh. And the gospel of the kingdom we preached in all the world is a witness to all nations, then the end will come. So in terms of AD 70, St. Paul is well into his Roman mission, the gospel is around the world, before the end of the Old Covenant is finally pronounced, which means that the gospel is planted Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Whatever this was uh, um, in, in Daniel, it was when um, the, um, it we talking about a, a, an idolatrous uh, shrine in the temple. Um, that 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 uh, or in the context of AD 70, it, it had to do with what the Romans did as they began to take over and desecrate the place. Um, whoever reads, let him understand. So, and then verse 16. Now, here here are some of the things that I think make it very clear I, that 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 this is a first century horizon. He says in verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let he who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days, because you can't run very fast. What he's saying is when you see this desecration, you know, it's about ready to be done. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Yeah, that you, 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 maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, you, you might, you might, yeah, you might be tucked be prepared to keep a holy sabbath and yeah. like uh it was, it was interesting uh i i an, uh, a parallel thought is 
in Maccabees uh, in 175 years before Christ, um, a Syrian general, a wicked Syrian general named Antiochus, um, tried to impose pagan worship on uh, Israel and set up uh, uh, essentially a pig sacrifice in the temple. And the apocryphal book of Maccabees chronicles the Maccabean revolt by Judas Maccabeus and his his sons um, who who withstood it and 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 conducted due to the hills and conducted a guerrilla warfare against the Syrian forces that they won. And that victory is the origin of Hanukkah for the Jews, because the whole story with that. But when when they fled and and the Syrians pursued them, in the first battle it was the Sabbath. And they decided not to fight on the Sabbath, and a and a contingent of the Maccabean revolutionary force got slaughtered. And so they had a council the next day and said, This is not a good idea. So they decided after that that they would decide to fight on the Sabbath. So it could be, you know, like Dan's mentioned, something like that, that they were, would not be prepared to run, and therefore that would be probably the most likely explanation that you, you, you'd... Uh, but then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, this is problematic for people to understand because they think, you, you wonder how a localized invasion of Israel becomes the great tribulation beyond all. But we're, we're, we're given to understand that this is a cosmic shift in how heaven and earth relate to each other. An end of a whole system of interacting with God and the beginning of a whole new covenant. And the spiritual dynamic before that makes it, and, and makes it, uh, and, 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 you know, as we know that, that as St. Paul talks about the prince powers and powers who do not want this, and, and John will, will get this in, in Revelation, will get where, where, where the, the evil one goes to pursue the offspring, because he's not happy. He wants to kill the Messiah like he did with, uh, Slaughter of the holy innocents. <clears throat> so, so there's a whole cosmic dimension to this battle that makes it the great tribulation. And um, sometimes those, the kind of, of thought that is sometimes called dispensationalism, which has informed most of the prophecy understanding of people in the contemporary world, want to make the great tribulation something that's not yet happened yet. And there'll be some great period of tribulation will be the greatest tribulation ever. But that's not what the clear context of Matthew said, or, or the Gospels, not just Matthew, that, that um, the tribulation involving the end of the old covenant age and the, the actual historical dawning of the new covenant age in the establishment of the church is the great tribulation. Catholics don't believe that, do they? I don't know that there's that there are fixed 
interpretations that Roman Catholics have. There, there are ways they're fraudulent. Pri about all the but, but they don't believe their dispensationalism is a doctrine that that was created in the 1800s. Okay. So that that, that really thought that really um, history there. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for elect's sake, those days would be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, verse 23, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Cryptic saying, what is the eagle? That the carcass is the carcass of Israel, Old Covenant Israel. The eagle is the standard of the Roman legions. And they will be gathered around the carcass. And so in those two verses, Jesus equates his coming with the Roman legions and the carcass of Old Covenant Israel in the same way that the Old Testament God equated his the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem with his coming. So this is not, I guess what I'm trying to say to you, or when I, I make, I'm advocating for a point of view, this is not strange biblical language. The day of the Lord, historically in, in, in the Bible, has always been occasioned by or, or carried out through some secular agent that God says he's going to do this for. Now here's the here's the language that, that, that Trump that confuses most people. Verse 29 and following. And what we need to understand when we start reading this is that these are this is prophetic language, deeply rooted in the language of the Old Testament, that is symbolic. And this is where we get into um, prelude to Revelation, where it's all symbolic. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, um, there are a number, of, we're going to, um, when we get to Revelation, we'll do some cross-referencing, because it also refers to these cosmic signs. But there are numerous prophetic passages where, where God's activity is, is referred to at, with the idea of the sun is dark and the moon doesn't give light, the stars fall. So, it's prophetic stage props vindicate a cosmic shift in things. Um, 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, This, uh, we, we're going to have a lot of time to dive into Daniel because he's going to come back up in Revelation. But I sent you um, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. need to file that passage away because Daniel 7, 13 and 14, one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. So here in verse 30, um, the sign of the Son of Man and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So, to understand what it means to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds to a Jewish person in the first century, you need to go read Daniel 7, where the Son of Man coming, comes with the clouds. But what's, what's pointed out, what's obvious in that, and N.G. Wright points this out in his commentaries, if you go to Daniel, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds to the Father. He's, they'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. He's not coming to the earth, but to the Father. And why is he coming on the clouds? Well, the cloud being a symbol of the divine presence and glory, he's being elevated. It's a, it's a, it's a passage we read on Ascension Day at morning prayer because he's going to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So what this means here, that they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, is they will understand that I am the guy Daniel talked about. I've received universal dominion, and that you who judged me will now be judged by me. Now, there's a little bit of, of linguistics here that helps make this clearer. If you can, if it doesn't make any sense, um, just bear with me. But in um, Okay, so turn to Matthew 26, verse 64. So this is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, okay? And in verse 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to them, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you that hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, what I want you to, to, to recognize here, so have one hand on Matthew 20. 664, and then come back to um, Matthew 2430 with your other hand, okay? So in Matthew 2430, 
he says to them that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He's talking to his disciples, but you're, he says that you, they're not going to, his actual disciples are not going to see it. But when you get to the leadership that's rebellious, he says to them in verse 64, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, because they're going to be judged. The disciples that aren't, they're going to be warned to flee as Jesus just warned them, and they're not going to see it. They're going to be saved from the judgment that is coming on Israel. In 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 the same pattern that's always happened in in the Bible. God saves the chosen and judges the disobedient. But that's the clear that, that sort of pronoun contrast. The disciples, they're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. I've just told you to get out of town because you're not supposed to see it. Listen, go, run. But they will see it. And and um and it goes on to say in verse 3, he'll send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet, and they'll gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That may be an image of the end of time, but it clearly is an image of the mission of the church going out to gather the elect throughout the world. And so we're in prophetic language here. The cosmic dimension of the church's ministry are the angels who and the, 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 the spiritual forces that guide the mission of the church. And we'll see this, for example, in Revelation, where the letters to the churches are addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel of the church. They've been sent out, so that kind of ties into that language there. The, um, there's a whole lot of things to, to discuss in this passage. I don't want to make it a we could do a whole lot of the all-death discourse. We might come back to it. Um, the one thing I want you to see is um, verse 34, and just let it sink in. Um, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, in prophecy teaching, they will say, this means some future generation that sees all the signs that Jesus talked about. But that's really dancing around what Jesus is saying in the context is, this generation I'm now talking to won't die. Biblical generation is about 40 years. Jesus is dying early 30s. Destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, within a generation, they don't pass away until everything he says happens. Now, um, so that's kind of the, the introduction. When we have the essential framework of reference, we start entering Revelation that way. We're going to see a lot of the symbols fall into place in terms of of what of, of of how revelation as a as a doc a document that both describes the end of the old covenant age and the birth of the new covenant age and in dynamics that are in play between 
the, the way the new covenant people of God are seated in the heavenly places, even they're living on earth, that will make sense of, of a lot of it. Um, the enduring message of all of this is that for all of us, it, it, you know, though, though this is a particular historical judgment, it always makes the point to us that the message of salvation is an urgent message. That when God speaks, we have to reply to it and not responding to it and not listening to what God says has consequences, not because God's a mean dad who wants to, it's because you can't, the whole world is upheld by the word of God and only by conforming ourselves to that can we have life and flourishing. Can't say no to it and have our own thing, which is what the world always wants to do. And that's kind of it epitomizes the world we live in too. It wants to say no to God and then to have a, a peaceful kingdom. Like Israel wanted to say no to God and be saved somehow. So the urgency of salvation is always highlighted by that, by all these things for us. Um, so that that will be an introduction to uh, next week when we'll jump into chapter one and, and walk our way through it. I might send out some more verses on that. But it's it's um, what what I, I encourage you to start to read Revelation is it's 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 a book full of symbols. It's a book that we should read contemplatively in the sense of trying to get a glimpse of understanding of what we're seeing. People get into trouble with it when they try to read it dogmatically and try to fit images into some theory. All of the images fit very well with the narrative themes of the scripture, the Old Testament. Everything in Revelation is deeply rooted in the, in, in the images of the Old Covenant as these have been brought to fruition in Christ. And it gives a way to see it in symbol. It even helps us understand our own lives and lives of prayer. Any, other, any questions about that? <laughs> yeah, I think about it a lot. I mean, but this, this really, for me, I just share personally the reason I... I I was like this, and not that I, I, you know, is that it, when I began to understand this perspective, it just made sense of so many things that that never made any sense. People tried to fit, and you, you, that, that just don't fit. This, and so I, 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 it's hard for me to understand how you can really read Revelation without at least seeing on one level what it's talking about. All right. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forevermore. Ship Scarlet. Thank you all. I, if I record you. Any question? Are you saying something? I was wondering if it's all right if I record you for these. Um, actually, if the truth be told, I think the whole class is reported. 
And I think there's a way to access it because that little red dot I see up there is, um, I'm going to stop recording now so that